This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, how are you today? Good to have you along. This hour, as predicted, Australia has now given up on the fight to eradicate the deadly varroa mite pest after a group of government and industry representatives agreed to move to a management plan. We'll get into that shortly here on the Country Hour. And a little later this hour, the debate on the repeal and amendment bill for the Aboriginal Heritage Act has started in state parliament this week. It's back on again and you'll hear exactly where it's all up to just after news headlines and a look at the weather around Western Australia, just after half past 12 today. It is six past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. Well, thousands of tonnes of an oilseed crop promoted as a foot in the door to the multi-billion dollar biofuel market has been left sitting in farm silos across the country. Super high oleic safflower was originally developed by the CSIRO and had been touted as a valuable new crop for Australian farmers. It was grown commercially in Western Australia last year. However, farmers such as Ben McTaggart say nine months after harvesting, the seed has not been paid for or picked up. The company they're dealing with is Go Resources. Uh, It was a closed-loop supply chain, so... Go have been doing all the product development and also the breeding work on the super high lake safflower, um, which is a GM trait, so regulated by that, which has affected things a little bit. Yeah, so there was a closed loop contracted all back to them. All the um, hectares were contracted back to them with the expectation of delivery sometime between sort of February and March this year. So you were expecting uh, we it to, to go from your place February, March this year. You're what, you're expecting someone to come and pick it up on behalf of Go Resources? Pretty much, yeah. They were aware that it was sort of because of the sizes around of, of the extended trial areas, I suppose, you know, because most of the people growing it were sort of in the 40 to 50 hectare lot. You know, with the expected yields, that was probably not going to be even road trains. So it was going to be milk runs, so it was going to be easier for them to organise, was my understanding. Uh, who we paid for it was not really relevant. Um, the pricing, I think, was – I have looked at it for a while, but the pricing was going to be on-farm, so I suppose they were responsible for the freight. But early on, we were expecting to go straight off the header, and then it became evident there was going to be a bit of a delay because of the big canola crop and the crushing uh, – just getting into crushing facilities, and that was fine. Um, yeah, so we sort of pushed out to a sort of a February-March expectation, and, and yeah, then it's all going to be quiet since then. So you're still sitting, what, in a silo at your place? Yep. How much is there? I don't know exactly how much it weighs, but somewhere between 35 and 40 tonne probably. Can I ask what the value of that crop was? What were you expecting to receive for it? Again, I haven't looked at the contract. I'm pretty sure for a little while, but I'm pretty sure it was about $650 a tonne on farm. And I think there was a, a hope as the product and the market developed that would sneak up and oil bonification and stuff, a bit like the canola industry, would start to come in, depending on oil yields and things. But, yeah, I think they were starting at about 650, um, which I think is slightly less than over east, but uh, they were a bit, you know, there was more inefficient transport logistics and things because of the, the spread of growers getting back to getting back to crushing facilities. I think they were recognising that in the price a bit. Mm. So worth about 
20 odd thousand for you. Have you received any of that money? No. Yeah. So what sort of communication have you had with Go Resources then? If you can't really do anything with it yourself, it's still sitting on your farm. It hasn't been taken. You haven't been paid for it. What are Go Resources telling you? Communication has been a little bit light on. Um, I haven't heard anything officially from Go since uh, the end of July. At this that stage, they were expecting corporate funding to come in to, I presume, finance the crop. I'm not involved in the details there. I don't know exactly what's going on. You have to speak yeah. to someone closer to the source to learn more there, I think. So that was the message, though, that was being delivered to you was that uh, we're waiting on funding that we'll then, we'll then use to, to pay you and pick up the product. Yep. Yeah, that was the official line of uh, email sent out on the 31st, I think it was, of July uh, to all the, all the growers. I think there's 40-odd growers in the state this year. We all received an email then. And as far as I know, there hasn't been any, any official communication since unless people have spoken directly to the company. Mm. How are you feeling about it all, Ben? Uh, we're a bit disappointed in the communication process. Obviously, it's you know the whole well, it's all disappointing at various levels. We're a little bit disappointed in the in the performance of the crop last year. Um, after being quite excited about the idea, but that's okay. Yeah, it's a new crop, and we were probably in a position that we saw that there was some potential there, but we're probably going to sit out of the commercial side and let the I feel like the agronomics and the genetics had to catch up a bit to expectations. That that's fine. A new new product we, you know, that was that was okay, but we were probably a little bit disappointed in the yields given the type of finish we had. And yeah, I suppose that disappointment has been compounded by the, the off farm the marketing side of it mm. post harvest. You can't find a market for it yourself or anything like that. You can't sell it as stock feed or something like that. We haven't looked at that. Um, that that was the that was the message delivered from the company in the July email because uh, apparently there'd been some growers. Exploring opportunities, um, it was made pretty clear to us that it was a closed loop and being a GM product that was regulated by GTR and not allowed to distribute and sell it as if you're not a licensed marketer. Now, I don't know how accurate all that is. I haven't didn't, it just hasn't really occurred to me. It hasn't, it's not something I've given any consideration to. Safflower has been promoted as a break crop for sodic soils. You haven't had a great experience with it for a a few reasons, but do you see it still having potential, perhaps in the longer term, to fit into different farming systems? So do you, do you still think it could have potential for some of your paddocks? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the idea of it's good. We're a bit disappointed with the interaction between its yield and how much water it used last year compared to, say, canola on similar countries. So that, that, that's a, that was a bit of a surprise. We were expecting the following crop to be better than than it has been. So um, it dried, know, out, dried it out, did it? Yeah, yeah, yeah it really dry, dried the profile out, um, even compared to canola, which would have been fine if you know, if it had been correspondingly delivered a superior yield than what we were expecting. But because it hasn't done that, it's in, you know, at this stage it's disappointed last year and then caused further disappointment this year, which is a bit frustrating. But I don't think that's a deal breaker. I think there is definitely options for it and particular soil types and things. I think it's, it's, it's something worth worth investigating. I think there's a bit of research money going into it and I think that's a good thing. Ben McTaggart speaking to Joe Prendergast. 12 past 12. Michael Kleining is the Managing Director and the CEO of Go Resources, the company that owns the right to this super high oleic variety of safflower. He says when contracts were signed, their short-term financing was assured, but that funding has since been delayed. That delay has obviously 
unexpectedly meant we've been unable to really complete the uh, the contract and the transaction with our farmers. We did contact them all in April, May and July. Um, so that was the third contact we'd made with them. And up and from July to August and September, we had suggested if you had any further conversation for you, I gave them all my contact details for them to contact me. And so the issue has been around the funding of Go Resources in its capital raising process in order to have the capital to pay the farmers. And as most people know, under the GTA contract, uh, it's, a, it's an on-farm price that we quoted to the farmer, and once the product is removed from their farm, we have 30 days to, to transact with them. And uh, we had asked our farmers in WA for many reasons, one being the uh, difficulty in finding large uh, storage capability due to the large canola crop that had been harvested that year and we'd asked a lot of our farmers to keep their grain on farm for a longer period so that we, uh, one, would be able to find some storage capability and second, we'd be in a position to uh, pay for the grain as we moved it off. How many farmers across the country grew this product for you last year? About 50, 55, 58, something like that's the number across all Australia. And and how much is, is sitting on farms at the moment? There's about three thousand four hundred tonnes sitting on farm at the moment. You, you're waiting on some venture capital. How much money are you waiting on? We're waiting on 20 million. It's a headline value of 20 million. It's split between 10 million dollars of a straight equity investment in the company and a 10 million dollar uh, short-term financing facility which is the, the part that's actually causing the delay in the transaction. As everybody would know, we buy the grain in March we then have to transport it, crush it, refine it and sell it, which we have purchase orders for, and then we receive the revenue in about September. So we have to find a short-term financing between March and September in order to pay the farmers. It's the failure of that financing at the moment or the delay of that that's created this position. The growers that the ABC has has talked with, and we've chatted to about six or seven, say that, yeah, the situation's been going on for at least nine months are you able to let them know when they're going to see some money? When I know, certainly, they will know a second after I know. Literally today, what is 18th of September, it is 11 o'clock in Europe at the moment. I'm waiting for a call on the release of the funds. It's been that close for the last month or so. I'm relying on third-party information out of Europe, and uh, therefore all I can do is pass on to the farmers what I know. How have you financed crops in the past? Uh, by short-term financing, but as we've grown in the area size, we need larger financing. So we had this financing for this year all agreed to in February 2022, which technically enabled us to move into our contracts and uh, go from there. But we haven't, we've, we've grown year on year in the amount of grain. The other grain we've been able to do with other short-term financing and sold the oil in order to have that revenue. Go Resources holds the right to commercialise super high-alert safflower How can you be asking growers to buy seed and grow this product for them before you have the money to pay them? Uh, Well, we had had the the promise of the money to come to us, otherwise we'd not enter into those contracts. At the time we entered into the contracts, we were very confident that we would have closed the deal in order to be able to finance for the grain, otherwise we would not have entered into it, so... I've chatted with growers and with harvest coming up, they're needing space in field bins... It's a closed-loop system, so Go Resources is the only buyer for that seed. What should they do? We are 
very hard working behind the scene in trying to get storage capability and also to close the transaction in order to be able to avoid that, that crunch point which I believe is coming up around the end of September. We're working very hard on... <laughs> I don't want to... I'm not sleeping well, let's put it that way. It's a very stressful situation for Go Resources as it is for farmers and we, we, we're with them, we're trying to do the best we can for them. I imagine that it is incredibly stressful. Are you also worried that these funding issues will impact the development of this new crop and market in Australia? We are in a plant breeding situation. We've just received a $3 million grant from the government, which helps us uh, with review to plant breeding. But we are starting a large, another large plant breeding program. We, it may cost us 12 months of development in delay, uh, and that is a concern, yes. Are you concerned that you've lost goodwill with growers? Oh, absolutely. I, I know I have. That's one thing I'm, we're going to have to work very hard on when we're in a strong financial position to, to go and attempt to get that back. Whether I can or not, that's what we have to do. But we have absolutely lost uh, the confidence of the growers. That's probably the biggest disappointment of the whole thing. Managing Director and the CEO of Go Resources, Michael Kleining, speaking to Lucinda Jose. 18 past 12. You're with Belinda Varasgetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Well, as predicted, Australia has now given up the fight to eradicate the deadly varroa mite pest after a group of government and industry representatives agreed to move to a management plan. The pest was first detected in the port of Newcastle in June last year and has since spread across New South Wales. Millions of bees have now been euthanised as part of the eradication plan. Calls from beekeepers and agricultural groups to move away from eradication have been growing louder in recent weeks. Dr John Tracy works in biosecurity with the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries. And he says the new approach will be implemented immediately. So the transition uh, will focus on an immediate stand down of eradication, mandatory eradication. It'll establish programs to manage the movement and spread of ROA. And that will include some zones, both a management zone around Kempsey, Hunter, Central Coast, as well as a surveillance zone in the rest of the state. There'll be a focus on management solutions for mites in hives and for industry to build industry resilience and to support pollination services as the priorities of, of the new plan going forward. Okay, so the red, the blue and the purple zones, uh, are they a thing of the past? Those zones have been lifted, changed um, somewhat? Yeah, that's right. So current surveillance emergency zone, that purple zone, as well as the um, eradication zones, the red zones in the, in the regional outliers uh, will be removed. That'll become part of the broader su- suppression zone, which will pick up um, most of the state. And the um, current em- emergency eradication zones in Kempsey, Hunter, Central Coast will become management zones. And is that because of the the clusters, the high mite loads still there, some um, traceability that hasn't happened, particularly with the Kempsey cluster? So that's all based on the the, the presence of varroa in those areas um, in in the in the feral bee population, and as well as the 
the likely IPs in, in Kempsey as well. So it's based on the, the presence of Varroa, and then the important part about that is to continue to suppress Varroa in those higher density areas where, where it occurs. So the um, euthanasia of hives will cease, but beekeepers have an option to still euthanise their hives and claim for compensation? That's right. So all current um, emergency um, eradication zones will have the option of voluntary euthanasia and access to ORCs and, yep. and, and assistance. And what will happen in the management zones in the Hunter, Kempsey and Central Coast? How long will they remain management zones for? So they'll remain in place until um, such time as there's a change in that decision. Um, but the, the requirements for those will be that there will be free movement allowed within the, the management zones. There'll be um, movement allowed um, between those existing um, management zones under secure conditions. And there'll also be an, an opportunity for um, movement under permit with certain conditions based on risk um, inside and out of that zone. Yeah, and beekeepers across the state will still be required to um, do alcohol washes every 16 weeks, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So that's that's been part of the NMG decision too in terms of the the importance of being able to track spread of varroa and minimise the impact for beekeepers and for pollination industries. And how soon will these changes come into place? So this afternoon there'll be an emergency order out that will um, clarify those parts. And are there any new detections of varroa mite? There hasn't been any announced since last Thursday. Um, is that even relevant now? Um, so, yeah, look, the, the change in focus will, won't, won't require us to, to go out with individual orders on new IPs. We'll have these existing zones in place and they'll remain in place. Uh, we do want to continue to track spread of varroa, so we will be letting people know where varroa is de- detected and and we'll be updating those maps accordingly. Dr John Tracy, the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries Deputy Director General of Biosecurity and Food Safety, speaking to Kim Honan. 23 past 12. Rupert Phillips runs House of Honey in the Swan Valley, just north of Perth. He thinks it's now inevitable the pest will find its way into Western Australia, but he still understands why there's been a shift to a management approach. Well, yes, it's been a, a large unfolding story. Um, I think the common thread that I've been hearing through the beekeeping circles is that um, a lot of beekeepers haven't been satisfied with the level of compensation they've received, uh, especially those who've been in the business for a long time. Obviously, uh, there's a lifetime investment in, in such a business, and um, I think there are a few people who are really struggling. I think those people are the ones who, who've actually said, look, you know, this is just crazy, this shouldn't be going on, even though I feel they still have the, um, you know, the well-being of the industry as a whole uh, to heart. So it's a very, very difficult situation. Um, obviously, there's motivation from everybody to try and eradicate this mite. However, there's so many other factors that have come into it. Uh, recently uh, obviously has changed their decision. Moving to management, you then extrapolate that to think, well, that increases the risk of Varroa making its way into WA. 
for you as a beekeeper in the Swan Valley, what's your your take on that? Do you expect that we will see it coming into WA at some stage now? Yes, look, um, it's very difficult to make a uh, make an educated guess with this one. Of course, it will eventually get here. I would not be surprised when it gets here, but all we can do is hope that we can hold it out for as long as possible. There are very many ways in which it could reach WA, such as uh, feral swarms on mining equipment or uh, sea containers and such like, which have been moved from over east. So there's a very real danger. It could be here tomorrow. It could even be here now, but we just hope that um, we can keep it out for, for as long as possible. If you had the ear of Deepherd who are managing the border and that biosecurity risk, what would you say to them? I would say to them, please help us. We are in a very unique situation here in WA because of our location. We need to have the strictest possible controls on any border movements um, in terms of anything apiculture at this stage because um, that would be a real bonus, even perhaps extra funding for it. Are you feeling like you could manage Varroa if it came into Western Australia? Could you manage it in your business and remain viable? I'm probably fortunate because um, I have a situation where I can actually realise a retail price of honey for those beekeepers who are producing bulk honey and perhaps um, more reliant on uh, world prices and so on. It's probably going to be more difficult. But I think we could definitely cope with it. I think anybody could cope with it. It's just a question of um, more intensive management and uh, certainly a lot more in the way of the expenses in terms of trying to keep the mite count down. Well, the honey price itself isn't great now. So how do you do that and cope with the increased costs of of keeping Varroa at a minimum or trying to keep it out of your hives? How do you do that? Well, that's a good question. But strangely enough, probably conversely, if there are less beekeepers producing honey, the price of the honey will go up because, you know, there's not that much being produced. I feel there'll be a lot of beekeepers who will say, that's it, hang up their their bee gloves and say, no, well, this is not for me. Um, So as a result of that, we probably have less honey being produced and uh, strangely enough, helping those who are still in the business. Do you have a plan about how you would cope with the increased workload? Would you keep the amount of hives that you have or what are your thoughts there? I think probably uh, initially anyway, I would reduce the number of hives that I have um, so that they can be managed more intensively. Um, Quite often people say managing a load of bees, one person for 300 hives is doable, but I think, you know, in a Varroa situation, it's probably pushing it a bit. So um, obviously you're going to have an increased cost in labour. So um, I think to try and keep it tight, keep it it well organised and keep it intensively managed would probably be the best bet. So I would probably be inclined to reduce my hive numbers somewhat. Rupert Phillips from the House of Honey speaking to Joe Prendergast. 28 past 12 here on The Country Hour. An update from the newsroom isn't far away. Just before that, though, if you've got a start-up business and you want a little bit of exposure for it, this could be the event for you. It's called AgriFutures Evoke Ag, and it's going to be held in Perth next year in February. And it's been described as Asia-Pacific's premier agri-food tech event. And applications are now open for 29 startups to get a free pass to participate.
in this event. And it's going to showcase the most innovative companies in agri-food tech innovation from Australia and right around the world. So if you want to be part of that, just search Evoke Ag 2024 and you'll find the website which has all the details for the application process. Just search Evoke Ag 2024 if you are one of those startup ag tech businesses and you think, well, this event sounds like it's right up my alley. 29 past 12 here on the Country Hour and Tabarak al in the studio with the news headlines. In the headlines, WA's Attorney-General says proposed legislative changes will make the state's political donation disclosure laws the most transparent in Australia. Under the proposed legislation, candidates would be required to disclose donations greater than $1,000 within a week of them being received or as often as daily during elections. John Quigley says the previous rules required an annual disclosure. The head of the Commonwealth Bank says it's unsustainable for it to keep spending $1 billion a year on its branch network. Chief Executive Matt Common has told a federal parliamentary committee fewer customers are coming into branches. The bank has placed a moratorium on regional branch closures until the end of 2026, but Mr Common says it can't afford to keep subsidising all branches in country areas. And the federal opposition says the government could be doing more to mitigate the impacts of a likely global economic slowdown. The OECD has downgraded its forecast both for the global and Australian economy for next year. It's urging governments to cut back spending and reduce debt to build financial buffers in case of unexpected shocks. More news at one. Tabarak, thank you so much for that. It is half past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio, WA. Between now and the news at one, it's off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market. Numbers down again this week. Tracy Kilner going through those details for you. Maybe that means the prices were up if the numbers were down. Uh, Tracy will go through it all for you just before the news at one. Also catching up with Mia Davies, who is the member for Central Wheatbelt and Shadow Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. And she was in Parliament yesterday debating the Repeal and Amendment Bill for the Aboriginal Heritage Act. That debate has started this week in Parliament. So what does the future hold? Is she confident that this can be worked out, that Aboriginal cultural heritage can be protected here in Western Australia? And the farm and the mining sector, everyone can be really clear about what they can and can't do on their properties. We'll get into that shortly. First, off to the Bureau of Meteorology, Joey Rawson with you this afternoon. Joey, it doesn't look like there's much rain about through the Southwest Land Division this week. Yeah, you're pretty much spot on there, Belinda. Um, We do have a mid-level trough that is approaching, so um, there is a chance of getting thunderstorms through the inland parts of the Southwest Land Division tomorrow, so places like Dowran, Dalwollanyu, all through the Great Southern, Katanning, Lake Grace, even stretching down to Albany. But with these thunderstorms, they're quite high base, Belinda. So uh, the rain that will be coming out of those thunderstorms will most likely evaporate before it hits the ground. So um, some places could receive a millimetre. And and if things uh, work out really well, you might get two or three millimetres. But that will be the tops out of uh, this event as it moves through. And then the next um, feature is on Saturday night into Sunday. It's a front that's going to be moving over the far southwest of the state and it is only weak, Belinda. Um, so 
the rainfall um, getting into you know the great southern area will be less than a millimetre and maybe around three to five millimetres over the far southwest. So they're the real uh, only real opportunities of some uh, rain for the next four or so days. Um, and outside of that, uh, not, not looking like getting much, Belinda. And then for northern and eastern parts, how's it looking? Yeah, so uh, very settled, uh, settled conditions continuing. So just a bit of wind through the um, interior for the next few days, but um, you know through the Kimberley and uh, Pilbara, uh, quite light winds with a trough that's uh, going to be lingering around the area. And any warnings for this afternoon? Yeah, we've just got some strong wind, strong winds with a sea breeze on the Gascoigne coast. Uh, so there is a strong wind warning for that area, but apart from that, no other warnings, Belinda. Joey, thank you. It is 27 to 1 here on the Country Hour, and a few places in the lower west and southwest received a few millimetres of rain overnight. The southern coastal region also got a bit of rain, and Denbarker topped the readings with four mils. That is it for the state. Uh, and speaking of the weather, the Bureau of Meteorology has now formally declared an El Nino weather event. The declaration comes two months after the World Meteorological Organisation announced an El Nino was underway. El Nino is linked to hot and dry weather, particularly in Australia's east. And if you'd like to read more on it, just search ABC and Tyne Logan. Uh, Tyne is the ABC's weather and climate reporter and is based in Perth and she's written a really great El Nino explainer for you. So just search ABC Tyne Logan, that's T-Y-N-E Logan, and you can read through that explainer. 26 to 1. Extreme and catastrophic fire weather warnings over the last few days have put some communities in the eastern states on high alert. Many are concerned about that El Nino weather declaration and, of course, the summer ahead. Greg Mullins is former Commissioner of Fire and Rescue New South Wales and is also a founder of Emergency Leaders for Climate Action. He thinks parts of the eastern states could be in for a bad bushfire season. Look, it's really concerning. And you were just talking about the emergency warning in Tasmania yesterday. We had watch and act alerts on the south coast of New South Wales. Um, in the 1990s, that would be unheard of. The fire seasons wouldn't start in Tasmania until about December, January, February. But um, having major fires there is a wake-up call. Um, the south coast of New South Wales has been a 30-year drying trend, 12% um, reduction in winter rainfall driven by climate change. And it's just turned the south coast into a powder keg. We saw that. I was fighting fires there on New Year's Eve 2019 in Batemans Bay, and mm. we know, you know, what a disaster area that was. So, look, this isn't unexpected. We've had three years of La Nina, and we always bounce back to a big fire season following a triple La Nina. 1957 in the Blue Mountains, Lura was destroyed. 1977, 49 homes destroyed in the Blue Mountains, suburbs of Sydney burned on I fought those fires mm. like Christmas 2001 2002 so we knew this was coming but you've got the added factor of climate change that just intensifies everything and now we've had this announcement of an El Nino with a positive Indian Ocean dipole and what that means is less rain more heat waves so 
really concerned about this summer. Yeah, I grew up in the Blue Mountains and people still talk about the 77 fires, right? But when you talk about acting in sort of factoring climate change as well, from memory, those fires were in December of 77, right? We're now talking about watching act alerts, as you say, in in September and uh, looking at my colleagues speaking in the Bega Valley this morning, usually these beautiful green rolling hills, but it does look very, very dry and and parched. And let's not forget suburbs like Cabago, Malua Bay, near Batemans Bay, uh, just a few years ago and just how bad it got. Now, I understand you're getting ready to head to a fire control centre in New South Wales, aren't you? Tell us about that. Where are you going and how do you approach a day like today with such, you know, hot conditions? And it's September, If you look at the legislation in New South Wales, the fire danger season, the official season starts in October because that's what happened for a century. But now we we run the fires from June, July every year, Mm. Um, except when you've got those heavy rains, La Nina. And what that did was fuel prolific growth and stopped us from doing hazard reduction burning. Greg Mullins is a former Commissioner of Fire and Rescue New South Wales and founder of Emergency Leaders for Climate Action. He was speaking to Thomas Ariti, 23 to 1. The debate on the repeal and amendment bill for the Aboriginal Heritage Act started in State Parliament this week and, as promised, the Nationals WA moved a motion to split the bill and repeal the 2021 Act before moving on to amend the old 1972 Act. The government voted against the motion and the MPs will now consider the amendments in detail. Mia Davies is the Nationals WA member for Central Wheatbelt and Shadow Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. Mia Davies, why were you so keen to split the bill? Well, for the reasons that we we explained during our second reading, which was that the 2021 Act is still in play and there is no objection to anyone in the opposition to anything in relation to repealing the bill. So we were offering the government the opportunity to move that part of the bill forthwith, get it done and remove that threat for all the people that were so anxious and concerned about what that 2021 Act meant for them. All the regulations, the LARCs, all of that ecosystem that was created, that still exists until this bill passes. So we were giving the government an opportunity to get rid of it as quickly as possible. Uh, They've rejected that, um, so we will now move through the amendments that they are seeking to make to the 1972 Act and it will pass because the government has the numbers. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to a couple of days in Parliament where we actually ask and hopefully get the answers that we need to clarify what the new system will look like. Well, the draft regulations have been given to select groups for feedback before the amendments sort of being debated in Parliament this week. What do you know of the, the draft regulations and what do you think of them? Yeah, we were told that they would be relatively simple. Um, On Thursday last week, we were handed three sets of documents plus two policy documents. So they are quite significant and you have to read them in concert with the Act and the amended Act. And so it's not a simple process, Belinda. And once again, because of the way the government handled the 2021 Act, we find ourselves back in a position with very little time to consult with industry. There has been some consultation with select stakeholder groups on the regulations as they've been developed, but we as an opposition have had very limited time to this point to get feedback. I would like to say that 
in the short period of time, we've got some from groups like AMEC, PGA, very minimal from WA Farmers at this stage. But I would hope that as we progress through, that more would be coming. And what are you hearing just, you know, initially? Um, that there aren't any real showstoppers, uh, but there is still real concern that a lot of what was in the 21 Act has essentially been or will be dealt with in policy. And the policy part of any part of legislation is normal. It's normal for departments to create policies to guide stakeholders. But it, I think, limits the amount of scrutiny that we can provide uh, through the parliament. And certainly it can be changed by government at any time. So only the regulations and legislation can actually, you know, they're the ones that go through the parliament. That's where you get the opportunity to raise questions. Policy can change and it has done in the past. That's a concern to industry. Most of all, the concern is that uh, at the moment, there is no clarity about what the system will look like. How confident are you at this point that this process is going to result in well, both the protection of Aboriginal culture and heritage, but also some certainty for uh, the farm sector over what it can and can't do on properties going forward. I asked some very specific questions uh, in my second reading and will continue to do that through the consideration in detail. The government has made some big statements that landowners will be able to revert to what they've been doing for the last 50 years um, without any risk of prosecution. Uh, The Act, as it stands in 1972 and will continue on, requires everyone to apply the Act. There's no exemptions like there were under the, the 2021 Act. So we just need to make sure that on the record, the Minister and the Government is very clear about what those obligations will be for landowners. Uh, And we'll go through that over the course of the next two days, Belinda. So are you confident that this will be sorted and everyone's going to land in the middle and be, okay, this is good, we can move forward? If you listen to my second reading speech, and I would invite your listeners to jump online and you can read the hand side if you're looking for some bedtime reading, I've said to the minister directly, excuse us if we don't rush open, uh, you know, open armed into agreeing with everything that you are saying, because once bitten, twice shy. This government completely failed in its approach to the 2021 Act and the regulations that they developed afterwards. And so I am not confident at this stage to say that we are going to agree with everything uh, as we progress. It will be a matter of asking questions and making sure that we get as much as we can on the record through the parliamentary process. Mayor Davies, thanks for your time. Thank you. Mayor Davies, Member for Central Wheatbelt and Shadow Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. 17 to 1. Well, you've heard a lot about farmers' concerns with the Aboriginal Heritage Act, but what about the resources industry? One person who's been following this closely is Leah Hiltonkamp, a lawyer associated with a new green energy project involving the construction of a giant solar farm at Lake Argyle in the Kimberley. She was asked for her opinion at a Future of Mining conference held in Perth yesterday. We've seen the law in WA around the Cultural Heritage Act change be rolled out, amended, and now it's repealed, and now it's gone back out for consultation. So, Lee, I guess I'll turn to you, looking beyond native title, and shine a bit of a spotlight, I guess, on when we look at that amendment, it's out for consultation. Can you help us understand in very simple terms 
What's going to be revised with that legal instrument and what are the benefits for mining companies? The key benefit that I really see in the bill that's currently out for consultation is that we're returning to the well-understood Section 18 consent process. I think a lot of the criticism with the new bill was that it was overly complicated, people didn't understand how it was going to work, who did they need to speak to, was it going to cost them a lot of money? So by going back to the old process, we're just going over well-trodden ground. The difficulty that I see with that is that obviously the Act, the new Act, the 2021 Act, was introduced after the Duke and Gorge incident and there was a lot of consultation, although perhaps not enough consultation, around what we needed in that Act to prevent another Duke and Gorge-like incident. So I think we need to be careful and it's going to be interesting in, in how this new old 1972 Act is actually going to play out, whether we have sufficient protections in that Act to prevent another really bad incident. Another key benefit, which is again to be taken with a grain of salt, I think, is the introduction of a new review process for native title parties. So in the existing 1972 Act, if there was a Section 18 consent decision that affected land, previously only the landholder could challenge that decision and seek a review in the State Administrative Tribunal. What the new bill is saying is we'll also afford that review right to native title parties. That's obviously a really important and significant change, and I kind of can't believe that it wasn't in the 1972 Act in the first place. So I think that's definitely a win if that review right is introduced. But then again, I think we need to also look at the fact that if the bill is passed, there's also going to be a new right, a call-in power, where if a review goes to the tribunal, but then the Premier sees this application or this review decision as being of state or regional significance then that minister has the power to call in that application, take it away from the tribunal, and then the minister makes the decision on that review application. And I think that can be problematic, and this process does exist, for example, in, in planning law, because you have a minister making a decision, you're trying to introduce the tribunal to have an independent review, but then it's going to the Premier, and so you have the Premier deciding over something that the minister has initially decided, and so the Premier appointed this minister. How, how truly independent is this process going to be? And, yeah, is that going to result in the best decision in the end for the Native Title Party? I'm interested to see how this will play out. Leah Hilton-Camp, an associate with HFW Australia, who's involved in the new green energy project at Lake Argyle in the Kimberley. It's still at the feasibility and land negotiation stage. 12 minutes to one. Des Mongu was also at yesterday's Future of Mining conference. He's the Community and Indigenous Liaison Officer for Strandline Resources, whose Mineral Sands project is located about 240 kilometres north of Geraldton. Des, what do you think needs to be done to strike a healthy balance between all of the stakeholders involved that are going to be impacted by this legislation? So obviously there was a massive pushback from the agricultural community 
How do we strike that balance between mining companies, agricultural communities, government, finances? How does that all come into the mix from your point of view? Let me, let me just take everybody back to the consultation process at the beginning prior to the 21, uh, 2021 Heritage Act coming into play. The consultation process was statewide. It involved Indigenous uh, organisations, in Indigenous individuals. It involved community consultation, miners, pastoralists, agriculture. <clears throat> the Indigenous people throughout this process did not ask for a lot of these things to be included in, the, in this new Heritage Act. You know, Chook and Gorge aside, to develop the changes in the Act, you, you have to take on board what, what your consultation process is and two of the main things that we asked as Aboriginal people, and I'm speaking as another person and a Wadjuri person that was involved with these negotiations, is that two things that we wanted. The sole discretion of the, of the Minister for Indigenous Affairs having final approval. We wanted that taken out, but we also wanted in a, a, an appeal process where we have the opportunity to appeal that, those decisions. Neither of those occurred. What did occur was all these other things that were put into the Act where it created a lot of fear-mongering. And that fear-mongering was Aboriginal people are going to, you know, ask for land that was cleared 135, 136 years ago, that they were going to ask uh, farmers or the pastors go back over that land and, and, and look for heritage sites. There's only one big flaw in that process, and that, that flaw is that all heritage sites are actually registered and they're registered under the Aboriginal Heritage Act. So all it needed to take was a farmer to actually go and have a look on, a, on his laptop, on his computer, and find out where these heritage sites were. And if those heritage sites didn't impact on his land, there was no need to go and pay for all this money. There was no need to do it, but we created a lot of this anxiety and that there was greed coming in and was going to create a greedy... A lot of people, it wasn't. It was just a simple thing that if you, if you go out and do a consultative process, you need to listen to the people that you're consulting with. And once you listen to the people consulting with, I can guarantee you now that the 2021 Heritage Act was still in place. If you listen to the uh, people that were involved with it, that impacted on it, and that were the local traditional owner people. Des Mongo. Community and Indigenous Liaison Officer for Strandline Resources Limited, and he was speaking at yesterday's Future of Mining conference. Nine minutes to one. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. We'll head off to Katanning shortly. Tracy Kilner will go through the yarding and the prices at today's Katanning sheep market for you. Just before that, though, let's just pop over to northeast Victoria where a new crop is growing that could one day be used to treat patients with diseases like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's and long COVID. Eight farmers have planted their paddocks with plantations of medicinal gum trees with high concentrates of a compound that could be used in pharmaceuticals. Annie Brown has the story. You know, predominantly kind of buckshot country, as you can see. Mark Valletta is a farmer who isn't afraid to try new things. I'm a mixed farmer based just south of Benalla. I uh, run quite a 
diverse operation of uh, cherries, grapes for wine, lucerne, Angus cattle, merino sheep, wild forage mushrooms and uh, the uh, medicinal gum trees that we're, we're here to see today. Yeah, I, I, it, it definitely piques uh, people's interest and they said, oh, medicinal gums, what, what's involved? Is, is, it, is it for the extraction of the oil? And this is, this is actually a compound that's in quite high concentrations called pinocimbrum which has uh, been shown to have some really good uh, beneficial uh, medical application in Alzheimer's and dementia and anti-inflammatory and uh, antimicrobial uh, qualities. When I found out that uh, the project was had really good backing from uh, Swinburne uh, University, Melbourne University, and there was a lot of research around it, I, I was like, wow, this is something I'm, I'm kind of really interested in. And, uh, yeah... A couple of years down the track, we're, we're standing here in the in the trees and, you know, some of them are almost 10 foot high. So Mark has 2,000 gum trees in his plantation and is one of a handful of growers around the Benella region. The trees are grown for Australian biotech company Gretels. The chief executive officer, Alistair Cummings, said they were originally looking for compounds that could be used to replace the use of antibiotics in livestock feed. When we started this journey um, in 1978, I was at a conference uh, at Massey University in New Zealand and as one of the key lecturers at that time stood up and made a comment in front of uh, major pharmaceutical companies and representatives from around the world is that the way that we're using antibiotics and livestock feed is going to lead to a potential problem as far as resistance was concerned. So that's when the journey started. So at that time I decided to meet some people from uh, University of Melbourne School of Botany, which is now Biosciences, and uh, got talking with them, and is that uh, we applied for and achieved to get an ARC linkage grant, and is that uh, we started looking at uh, originally 188 different species of Australian flora. And out of that, we found one particular species which uh, is in front of us at the present stage, which is a species which has got a high content of a compound called pinocimbrin. How long, in terms of a timeline, how long before we would see a product from these medicinal gum trees available to people to try? We're looking at um, having a functional food with this compound within the next um, 18 months. Easy. Dr Jason Goodger is a senior research fellow from the University of Melbourne. He researches chemicals found in plants and he's been looking into what this compound can do. So pinosambrin is a, a pharmaceutical flavonoid that has particular advantages for diseases of the central nervous system and cardiopulmonary disorders. Um, and we've done, with Gretel, some research on that, showing that it's, um, it's really effective in treating lung fibrosis, for instance. Something a lot of people with long COVID or those who've recovered from severe COVID have a lot of scarring on their lungs. And compounds like pinosambrin can, can treat that scarring really effectively. Would it be safe for humans to consume? Yeah, also there have been toxicity studies done on it and showing that it's a non-toxic compound. So there's 800 different species of eucalypts and there hasn't been a lot of systematic work on exactly what's in them. And so things like pinosembrin are relatively recent discoveries. So it's been known from plants in China for, um, well, the Chinese have known about it for millennia. And interestingly enough, they use plants high in pinosembrin as tea for elderly people. We can grow so much of it so easily compared to extracting it from the Chinese plants. But more than that, there's a whole range of these flavonoids. So it's not just pinosembrin. And they have 
all have different biological activities and potentially different uses. And then it's not just flavonoids. So I foresee a future where we have loads of different eucalypts and then lots of different other plants that we, we're growing for particular reasons because nature's a, an amazing pharmacy. It just grows some incredible um, compounds that can be useful in all, all manner of ways. And we just, we just don't tap into it hardly at all. Along with the growers, the company has also opened a mill in Benalla where the compound can be extracted. The support that we've got from the local community as far as growers and everything else is concerned, it's just incredible. But these people have also got a, a passion as much as I might have a passion in being able to see something which is going to be able to not only offer different farming opportunities as well, utilising land which is not really ideal for broad acre cropping or cropping or grazing on everything else, something which is going to give the local area employment as well. It's a big project, but it's got a big opportunity. It's that I always have a favourite saying, is that it's out there. All we have to do is find it. Uh, nature is the world's greatest scientist. Alastair Cumming, Chief Executive of Gretels, and he was speaking to Annie Brown. Three minutes to one. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Communities on bushfire alert in parts of eastern Australia as hot weather and large fuel loads combine. Cashing out, more than 1,200 bank branches have closed in the past six years and more expected by 2026. What does it mean for regional areas? And we take you to the UN in New York, where Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has addressed the General Assembly. Those stories are more coming up on The World Today. Time now to check how the livestock was selling today. 3,998 sheep and lambs were penned for sale at the Katanning Market today. That is down 1,526 on last week's numbers. Tracy Kilner is here with all the market details for you. Hello, Tracy. Hi Belinda, an improved quality yarding on last week but prices trended down on all categories with processors and restocker buyers selective. A quality yarding of new season lamb saw a downward trend on last week with the best selling at $90 a head. Mutton eased $20 with medium weights carrying a fleece selling to $50. The lightweight new season lamb sold from $20 to $31, trade weights returned $32 to $85 and heavy lamb sold to $90 a head. The lightweight old season lambs sold up to $30, heavier weights under 18 kilos carcass weight made from $10 to $60 a head, trade weight lamb ease selling from $20 to $40 and heavy lambs made up to $77 a head. Store ewes sold from $5 to $20, medium weights from $10 to $50 and heavy weights over 30 kilos carcass weight returned $25 to $30 a head. Ram lambs made from $34 to $70 for the better quality, while mature rams made from $5 to $30. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for that. And just picking up on the conversation we had a little while ago about the debate on the repeal and amendment bill for the Aboriginal Heritage Act, which has started in state parliament this week. In response to that, Michelle has texted through saying, at the ACH Education Workshop, we were told that there were likely to be hundreds of sites or more that may get listed, but only 78 were currently listed. And you can see why people get confused and fearful, says Michelle. Thank you for your contribution. On the ABC, time for the news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.